Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Hannah, and at this week's Roundtable, Emily and I spoke with Sarah Jackal, founder and executive director of Democracy. Previously, Sarah served as the Get Out the Vote director for the California National Organization for Women and National Outreach Director for Field Team 6, leading the innovative effort to register voters using effective issue-based voter registration techniques. Empowering women to hold political office has been a focus since Sarah first interned at the Women's Council of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee in college. Prior to creating democracy, Sarah practiced as a social worker in Los Angeles, helping adults cope with mental illnesses, addiction, and homelessness. She is a current fellow with Obama's Organizing for Action and serves on the board of directors for Urban Partners Los Angeles. She discussed her journey in civic engagement from being a social worker through becoming an activist to feeling the need to create democracy for intersectional women stepping into roles of democracy. A large part of why Sarah created democracy was to build skills into early women's leadership training in response to what she saw happening to women candidates in 2018 and 2020 who were stepping up to try to serve their country yet were brutally attacked and all the more across any intersectional identity. She recognized the need to help women build skills to manage our nervous systems and deal with both the imposter syndrome that can lead us to count ourselves out and the pushback that comes when we step up to lead. Sarah explained democracy's curriculum and what it entails, specifically zooming in on the power of incorporating resiliency and political skills for high school students. Getting civically engaged has been difficult for young women, and we discussed each of our journeys and how our experiences have been to date, backlash, and all. We ended the episode by discussing two concrete skills that we can immediately draw upon in our lives, our practices with grounding our inner best friend, and how we can finally take charge of our own futures. Thank you for listening. My name's Hi, Emily. Emily. Hello. But <laughs> my name's Emily, and I'm 17. I'm from the Bronx, and I joined YVOTE through Democracy Camp and Changemakers. And I'm doing the podcast, so that's nice. And today I'm really looking forward to discussing social work and the impact of social workers and how important that is. And also about diversity in democracy and getting women in the government and how we can diversify women in the government. Thank you so much for that, Emily. And hello, everybody. My name is Hannah. I'm here from Delaware. And I am really excited just to learn more about what democ- how democracy was born and how it's being used as a platform for youth female empowerment and how um, your, your organization is continuing to strengthen um, the voices of young girls and their mentors who are all trying to make this a more equitable society for all. So 
I think that's really inspiring. And based off of like what we talked about before we before like before we started recording, we were discussing just how I actually recently just applied to democracy and like was able and I got accepted into the first cohort. So even just this is really beneficial for anybody listening that is interested in joining democracy and learning more about how they can use their voices to be empowered and to be heard and to be represented in all facets of the government. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about that, Sarah. So hi, Hannah and Emily. I am already so excited to be here just hearing and seeing the two of you. My name is Sarah Jekyll and I am the founder and executive director of Democracy. Well, Emily, I to come into the journey of how democracy got founded through two things you said specifically, which is social work and diversity. So I started my career as a social worker. I worked with our unhoused neighbors dealing with mental illness. Um, I thought it would be my career and my life. And then in 2014, I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, which is a fairly awful autoimmune disease. And the lovely rheumatologist said, I'm so sorry, you will never work again. You live on a couch. I'm so sorry. And I did 2014 on a couch. And then there was a certain election in 2016. And I said, they are coming for the people that I love and the country that I love and I am getting up. And so interestingly, Emily, the skills that I used to get up, I will come back to because they're the skills I teach the Democracyros which is how can you, when you're faced with extreme difficulty, overcome it and be true to what you authentically wanna do and who you authentically wanna be. So I launched the elections. Um, I became the national outreach director for a voter registration group called Field Team Six and the get out the vote director for the California National Organization for Women. And something struck me. So Hannah and Emily, I assume you've been in many rooms around activism, voting, all of that. And I don't know about your experience, but in mine, 99% of those rooms are women. 99%. So as I'm looking around, I'm like, wait a minute. 99% of our candidates women, right? And then as we look into it, it's like, oh, wait. No, not only is it not 99%, in 2018, which was the year of the woman, in my own California, our women candidates were outnumbered by men in a four to one ratio. And then in 2020, 30% of candidates for Congress were women. In 2022, fewer women ran and only 27% of candidates in our primaries for governor, House and Senate were women. And then you, of course, have to look at this through the intersectional lens, right? So 28% of our Congress right now are women. Guess what percentage are women of color? I think it's like less than 5%, like 10, 10 to 5%. Like it's very, very little. Yeah, it's terrible. I remember reading about that a couple of months back. 9.2%. 9.2%. Sounds right. <laughs> right? And if you start looking across industries, right? So in the Fortune 500, 10.6% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. I have to ask again, guess how many of the 10% are women of color? Probably like 7%. What do you think, Emily? 
I'm going to say 1%. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be yeah. shocked at that either. You guys, three of them. Three of that. Right? Wow. So you're just used to, and you start seeing it across, across industries, across politics, these amazing, extraordinary women, right? Like when we went to ask them to run, it would take like seven to nine conversations to get a woman to consider running. It's just something you know, you task people to have different conversations. Guess how much conversation, I'm like asking you guys this guessing game. I'm like, guess how many, but guess how many conversations it typically takes our male identifying allies, bless their hearts. I honestly wouldn't be, probably none, but at most maybe like one. <laughs> so they self-select in, so often it's none, but if it is one, it's usually one. And they're usually like, yes, I was thinking governor. Our wonderful male identifying allies who are listening, you guys aren't doing anything wrong. I love that amount of confidence, but women need to match it right? Our female identifying people need to match it. So as I was looking at this, you guys would be so interested maybe to know that high school is the last time boys and girls think they can run for office equally. And this is where the social work, because Emily, you said you'd be interested in, know, in knowing like the social work perspective. The social worker in me was like, wait a minute, because two things. One is, women are counting themselves out and that's something that a social worker would address with you right what does your critical voice say what does imposter syndrome show up right mm -hmm. how can you combat that that's something a social worker would do and the other thing a social worker would point out is the very real consequences of women especially across any intersectional identity actually stepping up mm -hmm. because what did we see happen to women who did nothing other than say, I would like to serve my country. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just got slipped. And across any intersectional identity, the hate, the misogyny, the racism, the homophobia, it just goes. So the social worker would say, you are having a very real experience. This is a real experience. And there are skills that would help you manage your own internal nervous system so that they do not have control over your internal life. Mm -hmm. While we're trying to change them, they do not get to own you. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it's the same set of skills. It's the exact same set of skills that make you step up to imposter syndrome are the same set of skills that let you regulate your nervous system when people come at you. And so I thought... What if we created a female identifying leadership training program that not only built the kind of typical confidence skills that are exciting and we need as women leaders, mm -hmm. but built into that the social work resiliency skills to manage your nervous system, both to say yes to opportunity when imposter syndrome wants to chat in, but also manage your nervous system when society pushes back because we know power will push back. So let's put that in our training. And so democracy, and I was like, wait a minute, high school is not only the last time boys and girls think they can run for office, it's one of the most neuroplastic times of the brain other than infancy, which means you guys are wiring your brain like crazy. What if we wired in these skills so you have them for life? And thus, I was like, I have an idea. And the first thing I did, 2021, 
was come get together a youth team, leadership team of high school and college, female identifying students who would help me build this out. Because you cannot build something for young women without young women, mm -hmm. right? You can't do it. So we built it together. And democracy is a national, we're national. We are nonpartisan. We are a nonprofit with peer led, and I would love to talk more about that. We have one of our peer leaders on this call, peer led online training with a 10 week flagship program that Hannah's gonna do, which has made my whole day. And then one day summer intensives, and it's both the public policy skills to become a leader and the social work skills to stay on a leadership path when systemic forces try to throw you off. And that is the origin of democracy. That is absolutely an amazing, it feels like a superhero like origin story. It's like <laughs> any Marvel movie, like literally ever. Like it's really making me think of like, even like Captain Marvel kind of, it's like, oh, she went through all of these like terrible things was brought down. And then here she comes, most powerful superhero in the universe, a Shiro. Like it's just absolutely, it's amazing. And so I guess like my first question that I would have is really just about like what your take is on teaching women and young women, the importance of nonpartisanship and not letting, for example, like I feel like something that's really important that sometimes we've lost in today's politics is the idea of you don't have you can be partisan you can have your own beliefs that may lead to, from one direction to the other but it's important to be able to listen to somebody else's beliefs to at least hear them out to respect them to give that respect to somebody that you would like to receive as well when expressing your own personal beliefs how would you say that's facilitated in democracy's curriculum to ensure that women not only are confident and able to stand up for themselves but also able to make true change through representing re representing all voices in like our in our society i love that question hannah um and i love it because i talked about how i entered this through elections right through partisan through elections but where i came in 2021 was wanting to work in a non-partisan space because i fundamentally believe that the path forward for us as a country is to be able to disagree to be able to make our case to the voters. And that's the way best policy gets made. Hannah, you were saying in the in the conversation before we started recording, and I completely agree, if we all did the same thing, we would be robots. And you know what? A one-party country would not serve us at all. That would not be good policy making. So what we want to create in our young leaders are exactly what you're saying. People who respect both not only themselves, but others. So it's interesting because one of the ways we do that in the curriculum is we talk a lot about, we titrate back and forth between what are issues that through your own personal experience you would want to fight for. And then what is an issue that somebody else has that you don't have, that has no correlation to your personal life, that you would want to fight for? It's somebody else's journey, right? Because it's not only about, it is very much our lived experience and that is so valuable. I cannot talk about how valuable it is. Like I can't say it enough. It mm -hmm. is our lived experience and it's valuing the lived experience of others. Mm -hmm. so we talk a lot about as a representative, you have to represent all your constituents. Mm -hmm. You can't pick and choose who you represent. You have to represent all of them and you have to represent all of them to the best of your ability. 
So really, if you're thinking about political, political work, what I would say is it's about respect. It's about lived experience, your own and other people's. And it's about representing everyone as mm -hmm. a that is absolutely amazing. It really is a critical piece of not just, like, as you said, it's a critical piece of democracy, but also a critical piece of even just life that we can be able to communicate with others. So I really value, that's a really important value for our listeners, um, of especially like our female identifying listeners. If you're interested in applying for democracy, I believe there's a fall cohort. The, the application's closed for that, but there is also a spring cohort as well, I believe, that the application, if not open open now will be open hopefully soon that you it guys should open be now it is oh, open it is. right now yes awesome so then there you go listeners if you are interested this is an amazing organization and I'm really excited for us to continue to delve deeper into this so Emily did you have anything that you were like wondering off the top of your head at the moment yeah one thing that I was wondering is when I first read your bio and you your bio was talking about social work that meant a lot to me because in my school, we have this program called Relationship Abuse Prevention Program. And a social worker, like my, my coordinator, we love her so, so much. And she runs the program. And it's crazy because to make ends meet, she has to work at Target just so that she can afford to live in New York City. And she tells us all the time about how social work doesn't really get a lot of love and social workers don't get the support that they need. Because mm -hmm. I can't even speak to myself. like. Speaking just from my heart, I received so much help from social workers and it was even my own social worker at school. In my school of like 2000 kids, she's one of the only social workers. She was the one who basically helped me to want to pursue a career and a lifestyle in civics and government. And that's so important when you're talking about women striving to work in the government and work in DC and just work in big cities and make change because they tell girls a lot, like, you can't do it. How are you gonna get there? That's a lot. And we need social workers like that. And I would say, what's one thing that you as a social worker, how do you inspire um, people that you're helping to wanna pursue their dreams? You know, actually, Emily, before I answer that, you talked so eloquently about your, the social worker at your school. I would love to know what values you think she represents and that she brings that made you interested in social work it means so much to me to hear you say that and i just wanted to shout her out a little bit more and what you love about her yeah her name is miss erica and if i tell her she's definitely going to listen to this and she's going to be like oh my god i love this but miss erica miller she's the best ever and what she does as part of rap she doesn't work for the school but she works for a nonprofit, and we sign up for counseling meetings and she runs peer leader groups and it's all through a social justice fund. So everything that we do is through a social justice funds, our counseling, our peer leaderships. Um, she runs GSA and it's, it's just the amount of resources and support that she's given me and all of the other students. It really just speaks to that. And even just being there and encouraging us in any part of life, because that's so important. You know, it's interesting because I, I love that you're asking about social work because I don't often, when I talk about democracy, get to talk about the part that is social justice, was, which is inextricable from unconditional love, unconditional support, the fact that every human being has value. They don't have to earn it. They just have it. 
Um, and we meet people where they are. We don't ask them to change and arise and meet us where we want them to be. We meet them where they are. And I think one of the things that's been so fulfilling about democracy is getting to live in a space with these exceptional young women around a, a very unironic sense of sisterhood, a sense that we are women who have each other's backs. We have each other's backs for life. We are a national organization. So you have sisters in every state who have your back for the rest of your life. And we do so with radical hope. Because um, one of the reasons that I started doing the work of grounding or self-compassion or gratitude or all the skills that I learned in social work, right, that I started using them was when I found that I could not get up, right? I couldn't physically get up. And I, it, it just broke my heart. I had my clients I wanted to get to, broke my heart. And in that moment, having to meet myself with compassion for how desperately I had, I had what I considered let myself down, right? I couldn't be a social worker anymore. And being able to, in that moment, meet myself where I was um, and meet myself with compassion that I had this illness that wasn't of my own doing and, you know, have tremendous compassion for the consequences. And that that was what, it was only because of the gentleness of that response that I had learned from the field of social work that I was able to get up because when we're harsh on ourselves and we beat ourselves up, it just beats us down. We don't get up. It isn't actually motivating. Study after study shows that when we beat ourselves up, it is less motivating and less effective strategically than meeting ourselves with compassion. And what if that was our country? What if we met each other? with compassion, not just because it was the right thing to do, which I think it is, but because it's strategic, because it helps us get to the country we could be. And because unconditional love and radical hope are inextricable from social justice work. And I am, when I say that, I am standing on the shoulders of generations of leaders who have exemplified that through their work, right? So. I am not saying anything new. I am merely saying again that I was very grateful for the social work evidence-based practices of training that let me meet myself, others, and ultimately our country with the type of compassion that I believe we all deserve inherently in who we are. No matter what political persuasion, no matter what background, it's just in who we are. That's really an amazing take on social work. And it even has like, has like gears turning in my head about just thinking about the impact of social work and how Emily was talking about how social workers a lot of the time are very underappreciated across the spectrum, Can, like not, and like society fails to take into consideration the amount of work, the amount of physical and even emotional, like, like energy that that takes that you're putting your you're really putting yourself on the line for a lot of people to really help them be the best version of themselves. And I find that just to be so amazing. And I'm just like sitting here and I'm reflecting on the fact that at least in my community in Delaware, and I'd love to see how it is like across the, the different states and regions of the U.S. It's like oh, off so social workers in my community are very often um, 
mostly like marginalized communities are most like are usually the most dependent upon social workers around here so like I'll see a lot of a lot of black families a lot of Hispanic families a lot of families of color we see where social workers are really even concentrated in those areas and it has me thinking if it's because of this systematic racism that we know that it has unfortunately become so ingrained in our society, if that is contributing to the lack of support that social workers even receive on an overall basis. Like, is it because they just, the government doesn't want to put funding towards what, to a cause that would help um, non-white individuals, you know? So I'm just has me really curious on like, what your take is on that? If you think that that is possibly a potential issue that's going on within the system. No, I 100%, except I would expand it slightly. I would say, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. it is 100% systemic racism. Mm -hmm. and the people who are most dependent on the work of social workers tend to be communities of color. So they get the least amount of funding. Mm -hmm. And it can make the most transformative change, mm -hmm. I might add. So it gets the least amount of funding. And I would argue it's institutional patriarchy. Because who have traditionally been social workers? women who are traditionally teachers women who are traditionally these caretaking organizations that women have been allowed to go into that have been systemically underfunded mm -hmm. because they are a majority women so i would say it's a perfect storm right where like like groups that are particularly women centered are serving communities of color, which makes the perfect Venn diagram for lack of funding and resources and support. Wow, that's really, it's that's a really unfortunate situation. And so how would you say, like, what can we do? And I, I always like to like redirect it back to, especially our young women, like how can we advocate for ourselves um, in this society where there is so much patriarchy and racism going on? It just seems like the system is built, even like for me as like a, an, Af an African-American, it just feels a lot of the time like the system is just built against me. It's like, no matter how hard I try it's like it's getting to the point where especially after um some recent decisions I'm wondering if I should even put my race on applications because I'm worried that that's going to affect my chances of getting it in the same opportunity as somebody else but then I'm just like well my last name gives me away anyways I have a I have a foreign last name so it's just like what can we do it's like you just can't win and it's just so unfortunate that these are the thoughts that I even have to think about, that I've had to think about, that a, mo a lot of Americans, a lot of people of color have had to think about from an age far too young. And the experiences are just not the same across the board. And I think that's so interesting, even with democracy, because you guys focus a lot on intersectionality and how one's experiences can be very different from another's but it doesn't take away from particularly like one's experience isn't particularly worse than others it's just that this is my perspective on the world this is your perspective on the world now let's see what how where's the line where we connect which i think is just really interesting i have a thought and i have a practice mm -hmm. i have an actual practice that i'd love to walk through for you and your listeners, to, mm -hmm. like responding to exactly that. But before I do, I wanted to see if Emily had any thoughts. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about when when I'm hearing Hannah, when I'm hearing you talk about racism and patriarchy, and also Sarah, when I'm hearing you talk about social work and everything, and 
we said this in the beginning that everything is intersectional and it just made me think of an experience that I had recently and I was at a workshop and basically it was at a bank but the workers at the bank were helping us to with our resumes Mm -hmm. and we had to also do this thing where we're talking about our future what we want to do and I was like oh yeah I want to work in the government one day and then the the guy who was helping me with my resume he was white and I assume he was wealthy because it was a bank and he was like oh heavy hitter oh that's oh (laughs) that's a lot to do you know and I'm just like (laughs) he didn't say that verbatim but he basically was like oh that's that's going to take a long time how are you going to do that and I think that the reason why a lot of black women and Hispanic women and women of color don't want to pursue a career in government or in civics or in social work is because people are like how are you going to do that all of a sudden just because of our appearance and how we look and our background people assume that we can't strive and just excel in certain areas especially in the government I think that's why we don't really see diversity is because they tell us that we can't do it 100 percent 100 percent you know Emily it's interesting because when I was thinking when I was looking around the landscape at the women who are running what happened to the women who ran and what happened to our intersectional women who ran right and led and the amount of micro and macro aggressions that their nervous system. So just quickly, we have our prefrontal cortex, right? Where we think rationally. And then we have our limbic system where our nervous system is housed, which is much more ancient and it's what tracks threats. So anytime someone comes at you in a threatening way, we go out of our prefrontal cortex. This is just evolutionary. Every human body does this. We go out of our prefrontal cortex and our limbic system kicks in. And if you've heard of fight, flight, freeze, right? And what I saw happening, I will say, our white men were not getting triggered into fight, flight, freeze nearly as often because they walk into rooms, it looks exactly like them. No one looks at them strangely. Everyone greets them warmly typically right so like they're not getting triggered whereas our women and our intersectional women were getting exhausted exhausted by the constant triggering of this fight flight freeze which is again just evolution trying to help us but is exhausting and draining and one of the reasons you asked emily about the social worker component i thought what if we put the ways to regulate nervous systems? Because basically I was like, you do not get to control our women. I'm sorry, you just don't. You do not get access to them. That guy at the bank does not get access to Emily's nervous system. How dare he? So what if while we're working on that guy at the bank, we gave Emily her own set of armor skills to regulate herself in that moment so he does not get to tell you how you feel. And it's, again, not your fault. It's completely evolutionary. And there are skills for it, and that's social work. So I wanted to say, Hannah, to your point about what could young women do. First of all, please apply to Democracy. We are, our applications are open. On Instagram, we're at democracy.org, and you can find us there. And if you don't mind, Hannah and Emily, I'd love to walk you and your listeners through a little bit of a practice with what do I mean when I say, I want Emily to have skills in that moment so that guy does not get to control her, right? Mm-hmm. Do you, may I have your permission to walk through a little bit of an exercise that we will do and that we do in democracy and that 
exactly gets to your point of what can we do when we get triggered by this completely unjust society. I would love to. What about you, Emily? Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's right. do it. So I'm going to say approach this as a curious scientist, right? Mm-hmm. Because like your brain will come up with a lot of like chats and thoughts. That's totally normal. It's just doing its job. But mm-hmm. just for a sec, we're going to approach it together like an experiment. Mm-hmm. So if you want, you can, and your listeners can, if you want, you can close your eyes if that makes you feel a little more settled, or if not, feel free to keep them open either way. So in that moment, I'm just going to close mine as I'm noticing my body. Can you notice your feet on the floor? So your feet are making contact with our mother earth. And our mother earth is our very first feminist. And she has got your back. So feel on the floor that contact. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it hard? Do you feel like the soles of your shoes? Can you feel a a carpet beneath your feet? If you're sitting, can you notice your seat in contact with the chair or the bed? And then from there, your feet in contact with the floor and that your chair is also supported by Mother Earth. So just notice in this second that she has got you. She's got you. You never have to ask. She is always beneath your feet. And then if you want the slightly more advanced version, send down a vine from the base of your foot all the way to the center core of our earth and fill that vine with your favorite flower or your favorite fruit. It is your vine and it anchors your foot all the way into the core of the earth. You are anchored, you are settled. And in that moment, just notice the thoughts in your head about this exercise, about what's going on. Notice mother earth beneath your feet and remember that whenever you need her, just checking with her on the floor is an evidence-based practice that settles your nervous system because she has got you. And then come back, open your eyes, and just know, Emily, the next time you're in a bank, and that, if I may, idiot, says anything like that, you look at him, you smile, and you feel your feet on the floor. And you know that Mother Earth has your back and that you are doing an evidence-based practice that regulates the nervous system he is trying to dysregulate. Sometimes in our country, people are trying on purpose to dysregulate our nervous systems. And it is an act of social justice to regulate and decide where we want to come from. The last thing I want to say is Viktor Frankl, who was a, a, an Auschwitz author and survivor, he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, in between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is choice, and in that choice is freedom. And what if all of our intersectional young women flooded the world with that space between stimulus and response to 
to access their own authentic choice, not the choice they're trying to trigger you into. And remember, it's not your fault, but the choice that is authentically yours, because that I would argue is what freedom will look like. That is such an amazing practice to really think about for our listeners, just to constantly and consistently keep in mind that staying true to ourselves is truly the most important thing. And Emily, like your experience, I 100% relate to you. Like you're trying, I'm I'm like also, I am interested in engineering, for example. And so a reaction I get a lot, literally they'll be like, oh, what do you want to do? You say engineering, they're like, whoa well, that they're just like, you're trying to be a black woman in engineering. Like you have fun with that basically. And it's just like a reaction that is discouraging, but throughout like over time, even like practices, like what uh, Sarah was just telling us, they're really so empowering because it's just become like a switch in my mind now, whenever there's like a doubt, or even now that we're in high school and we're preparing for maybe to go on to college or something like that. And we're going through these, like, for example, me, like in high school, some requirements, if I want to do engineering would be like to take calculus, physics, classes that are not always, they don't come natural to me. But so like when I'm just like, oh my gosh, people have literally told me, there's like, are you sure engineering's for you? And I'm just like, I know engineering's for me and I'm going to make it for me. And so, and that, I feel like that is such an empowering mindset that took such a long time to learn. And like, now I just feel like it's so amazing to just apply across the board, whether that's engineering, whether it's you wanting to get involved in government, or even for like any of our listeners, like whatever we're aspiring to do and even focusing on democracy um, and like what you're teaching in the curriculum. It's just that like we're going to hear so many different voices telling us what we are and what we're not capable of and trying to set boundaries and limits for us that we haven't even set for ourselves. And it's just like, how are you going to tell me when my time is to stop, I'll decide when I want to stop. And that's not right now, you know? And so I think that's just such an amazing takeaway to really like hone in on that. We have to keep pushing on as female identifying people in this society, because there are constantly going to be those voices telling us that we're not capable, that we're not worthy. And sometimes they don't do it in the direct way that they used to, where they're just like, you're a woman, go sit down. Now it's more passive. They're just like, oh, you want to help? Here, you can like, file the papers or here you can like you can do the light work here like I remember I was in science olympiad this past school year and the advisor I'm doing like a robotics like physical experiment right and the advice one of the advisors is just like oh I don't he's like oh be careful with that I wouldn't want your delicate phalanges my fingers to get dirty and I was just like excuse me (laughs) excuse me I was like I was so, it took so much like self-control to just like, I just had to take a deep breath and I was like, I can't believe this, that just happened. And it's just like, it's the fact that we're in high school. Like it's such a young age. Like you're just like, we're still like trying to figure things out. And it's just like, I'm already experiencing sexism and I'm not even fully in the field yet. So I'm just like, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like these next couple of years. And so it's just crazy to think, it's just a crazy thing to think about, honestly. You know what's interesting? First of all, Hannah, that was so well said. That was so well said. 
And the thing that stuck out to me of all the beautiful things you were talking about, um, not the beautiful sexism, but the moment you took a deep breath and said, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. you are not going to, you are trying consciously or unconsciously to put me down. Mm-hmm. You are trying. And I'm saying no. And I'm doing that partially by self-regulating. Mm-hmm. And I'm and that is one of the most fundamental building blocks of the entire social work career. That yeah. breath, where you're like, and no, mm-hmm. and no, and you don't get to control and you don't get to put me down and you don't know. Yeah. And it's so, um, and I was just so struck by why I focused on high school partially because it's the last time, you know, boys and girls think they could run for office equally and partially because the women I have had the honor of working with are extraordinary. They are a Hannah, they are a Emily, they are extraordinary. Um, and I learned the reason why democracy was built and continues to be built by peer leaders. We are peer led and our previous graduates come back and lead our cohorts and in all of our workshops, as you'll see, Hannah, the young women are leading the breakout rooms, they're leading the discussions, they're leading everything because of the extraordinary nature. Oh, and I wanted to say one last thing that I almost totally forgot. Totally forgot. We are paid. We are paid. So we pay our young women to join us. We pay $15 an hour for people to come because traditional political pipelines tend to be unpaid, right? And that means the same people will always cycle through. So -hmm. if we wanna be truly committed to opening up a pipeline to everybody, to making sure, Emily, you said at the beginning, you know, social work and diversity. We cannot have either social work or diversity if we're not committed to pay equity and we're committed to pipeline equity, right? And that means that young women who would otherwise have to have a job can come and learn to be leaders, right? So the one thing I wanna make sure your listeners know, if they're like, sure, maybe I'm thinking about democracy, is know that we believe in the value of your time and we will pay you to come join us because mm-hmm. otherwise there's no path forward that's truly committed to equity. Wow, that is really a, perspe- a perspective that I wish a lot more organizations who like suppose, who they, they propose that they are there for youth equity, but they don't look at the actual like you said like what democracy it continues to be about the intersectionality like somebody may not be able to like traditionally go to something like this a critical experience to partake where they're learning the skills and the needed resources to really empower themselves because they have to say like support themselves support their family whatever their situation may be so I feel like this is just a great Another extraordinary example of how the or democracy is not just talking the talk, but truly walking the walk when it comes to equity and empowerment for all. So I think that that's really amazing. I agree because I'm like thinking about how, because I live in the Bronx and a lot of times there's so many programs like in Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever that a lot of kids could join. And these are huge programs that I think if a lot of people signed up, they could get in if they sign up to enough. But a lot of kids are like, oh, you know, I need to work at, I need to work and get paid. I can't go to this program because it's unpaid. So it's really important that that opportunities that can help people to excel are paid. 
because of that's that's a lot of people's lifestyles. They care for, for their family with that money or they have to take care of their siblings. And I think that's one thing that makes certain fields like politics and even engineering inaccessible is how pay is not often given. Yeah, I completely agree. And I and I think if we're gonna if we're gonna shake up what power looks like in this country, then we have to shake up what early access to power looks like, right? And then that, you know, my bet is on the long game. My bet is on at the same time that every two years we definitely need to participate in elections and vote. We also need to be thinking a couple decades ahead to the to the America we want to see. Um, and one of the things I say, and Hannah, you will hear me say it's democracy, but there, there is an America that has never been, but she absolutely could be. I absolutely believe in her possibility. And I think that America is what these extraordinary intersectional leaders from all across the country, from all different backgrounds, stepping into engineering, nonprofit work, social work, and knowing that running for office is their birthright at any time in their career trajectory. Emily, if you became a social worker, you know, Hannah, if you became an engineer, you would also know I can also run for office and I have the ability to do that. Yeah, I think that's so critical and so awesome just because even uh, like, I know I'm not the only one, like, I feel like um, something that is interesting about the high school system is they really try to corner sometimes a lot of students into, at least in Delaware, for example, we have to choose pathways. And so they really try to like, it's a pathway that you'll basically are, you have to follow throughout the rest of high school, essentially. And that's how you graduate high school. So it's really important that like, once you choose your pathway as a four, 13, 14 year old, you stick with that until you're 18. And so I find that to be sometimes problematic, just in the sense that like, for me as an individual, I have a lot of interests. Like I love engineering, but I also love policy work and civic engagement. Both of those are very, are something that I hold, things that I hold very near and dear to my heart. But even like the education system here in Delaware, it kind of makes you choose. So it's just like, do you want to do the engineering pathway? Or do you want to do the criminal justice pathway? So for me, I had to like at my school, just find a pathway. And I found a way that I could kind of create my own experience, take power back into how I want to spend my time to really develop my own passions throughout high school. But I just wish that was something that is just like reflecting that was more accessible in not just Delaware, but in the United States, because I'm not sure how it works in different states, but in Delaware, I feel like that can be very constricting, especially when we're talking about patriarchy here. When I look at pathways at my school, such as like the teaching pathway, it is obviously like, according to statistics, you see it play out in my school, predominantly women. And when you go into, for example, the engineering pathway, predominantly male, and there's like one, there'll be like one female who they are constantly ostracizing and making feel uncomfortable. And so a lot of the time we find that in my situation where it's just like, it's not that people aren't interested or want to spread their wings to go into things like engineering or policy, but it's because their welcoming environment is not being facilitated. And so I think that's so critical that we have these outside school out like these programs outside of school such as democracy that are not only for teaching but also paying people to truly learn how to harness every single aspect of things that their their own passions and what they're interested in regardless of what 
the system tries to tell them what you have to be, what you have to do, and that you have to figure this out now. Because I think it's just completely unfair here how they just are just like, oh, a 13, 14 year old decide now, this is probably what you're going to major in, make it work. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, you say that so well, Hannah. I feel like I keep saying, Emily, you said that so well. Hannah, you said that so well, because I'm on a podcast with two extraordinary hosts. <laughs> so true. And that's why, you know, it's interesting because democracy does go through schools, but we're also above them, right? You, yeah. can go, you can come through any state, and no matter what your school, no matter what your community is or looks like or supports, you can find a group of sisters that has got your back right? And believes in you and your dreams and doesn't ostracize you for having them or try to make you feel inferior or make you walk into a room that doesn't look like you. And it's really valuable to have these all female identifying spaces to have each other's back in, in our dreams that are so valid, right? And just, and like, honestly, when we're being gaslit, be in a room and be like, no, that guy's crazy, mm -hmm. right? No, that's not you. It's it's really helpful to have sisters who are like, yeah, that's not you. That's that's not you. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's so true. I want to add on to what both you and Hannah said, because in New York, it's kind of like what it seems like in Delaware, because we have specialized schools and basically you have to take, you know, the test when you're 13 and that determines what school you get into. And if you don't get into specialized, you could get into regular school. But then there's also schools that are screened where they check your grades, they check your test scores. So there's a lot of there's a lot of educational inequity here in New York, which is because and in New York, you have to choose what school you go to when you're that age. You have to study for that exam. And New York is the most segregated state ever in terms of education. And I go to a black school and there's a lot of resources that we don't get that I have to search up and go out of my way and ask people, how do I get access to this? And that's part of how I got into Wivo. And I joined so late because kids in marginalized communities, predominantly Black and Hispanic communities, are not getting these resources. And democracy, I really like how it's a diverse organization and the outreach to more marginalized communities. And it's really something that I look forward to. Well, I will just close with this. Um... One of the things you should think about if you're thinking of applying to democracy is we've on purpose made the application, and Hannah can speak to this. We're not asking about your GPA. We're not asking for references. We're not asking for a resume. We want to get to know who you are. Um, and the only, you know, other than like telling us about who you are and your background and what makes you hopeful and joyful, the only thing that we ask people to write about is an essay on intersectional feminism. And if people haven't heard the word intersectional and not everybody has, we define it for you in the application. It means that all women matter. It means that there is no feminism that doesn't understand the intersections, right? And I'm not saying as well as Kimberly Crenshaw came up with it, but there is no feminism that doesn't take into account all of the different intersections of what it means to be a woman. And it means that if we fight for any of the issues, we fight for all of our issues. There is no such thing as a sister who doesn't belong or a sister who we don't fight for, right? So like that is a, I, and I'm very self-conscious about the way that I did not say that right. But I am passionate about the fact that there is no movement forward for feminism other than intersectional feminism. 
And it's been a real problem in the feminist community in the past, and it can't be one going forward. So it's just essays on our application. It's super easy. You can do it on a video if you prefer rather than writing. But that's one of the only things we'd like to know is what is your take on that? And why do you think that's important? And why do you think the path forward is, is intersectional feminism? That's really the only, and Hannah can speak to the application, but that's really, that's really, we want to get to know you and we want to get to know about that. That is, uh, and it's 100% true. Like the application process, I I personally really appreciated like so much how democracy was trying to make sure that it was accessible because even like for somebody like me, sometimes it is hard to sometimes type out, type out the words that I'm trying to say. Sometimes it's hard to verbalize the words that I'm trying to say. I'm just like, as some of my peers are just like, the words are not wording. The math is not mathing. Like sometimes it's just not, it's just not doing what I want it to do. And so I just struggle sometimes. And so just to have that type of application process where it's just like, you can do a video, you can you can write it you can do whatever works for you I think it even had the option of like make a poem if you want to or something like that anything that you like like it's really about what works for you and it honestly even I learned I'm I continue to learn about myself every day but even filling out that application I was able to really learn about myself and I actually really had to reflect and I reflected in a way that I hadn't reflected I feel like in a long time filling out that application because not only did I learn about intersectionality which was a word I had never heard of before filling out that application I also one of the questions that really like even stick with me to this day was about what's an experience that you've overcome or are still like working to overcome and I was just like, and I appreciated the still working to overcome because I feel like a lot of the times we all have like a lot of goals and aspirations and it's, things don't always come to us as easily as we would like them to or how life, it, life just doesn't work out how we want it to sometimes. So to just be able to really reflect and I just sat down, I was like reflecting as a black Ghanaian American is how I identified on my um, on the application in America, this is this is my experience. And I believe something I talked about overcoming, what, which was, I appreciated the fact that it was just anything in life. It didn't have to be related to politics or civic engagement. It just really allowed me to be like, me personally, I had to overcome, honestly, self-hatred in a way for how I was made. And because for the longest time growing up in Delaware, it's a predominantly white state. I grew up in programs predominantly not like surrounded by people where I never saw anybody that looked like me. It was very rare where I was represented. Um, that I had somebody to look up to and say, wow, that can be me one day. Um, I really had to like kind of, I was on my own in a couple in a lot of senses, depending on the environment. But there were also some environments where I would be a part of, in, in the Black community. I was fully immersed, but then I yet still didn't feel completely accepted. It's this interesting thing where I've noticed in my community where it's just like I was I feel like I was caught in between two worlds. It was like I'm not it was like I would be told that I'm not Black enough to be with the to hang out with the black community but i'm not white my skin isn't going to let me pass to be a part of the white community like i'm too white to be black but i'm not white enough to be a part of the white community so it's just this really it's this really interesting thing that i really was able to sit down and to be able to just put that in words to be like i had to overcome this and it's something that i continue to overcome to this day where i'm able to just reflect and i'm just like 
I am perfectly and wonderfully made how God made me. Like I am okay. This is how I am. And I don't need to change a thing for the people around me. The people around me need to change their views. And I remember what I said, it was just that we live in a country where it was a lot, where we're influenced heavily by like westernized ideas of beauty of what of cultural references just so many different things and then we just block out every single other part of the world if it's not the european the european um idea of culture then it's ugly then it's wrong then it's not proper but it really when we learn to open our perspectives and because a part of intersectionality is that we're all different we all come from different places we all have different experiences and so to just be able to put that on paper like this is my experience and I felt empowered in writing that the westernized world I don't need to change to become more westernized the westernized world around me needs to change to learn to accept me for who I am and the cultural background that I have and that those around me also have. And so it really is just an empowering application and it's not complicated at all. It's not, there's no pressure of, oh, what my grades, who I am as a student, because it's not about who you are academics. Your academics aren't, don't define you. They're not everything. It's just a small part of what may makes what makes you you. And this op application really provided a beautiful opportunity to truly reflect on who I am as a person. So I really appreciated that from democracy. And I think our listeners and even Emily would really appreciate that out of the application when you when you fill it out, which I hope you do, because it's really it really was eye opening. Hearing you say that, it makes me think of, you know how a lot of times people say, oh, I don't see color, I don't see yellow, green, orange, white. It makes me so, so angry. Cause me like, too. <laughs> you, you cannot remove, I can't remove my skin. Like this is always going to be here. And yes. it makes me think of what Sonia Sotomayor said after, you know, the affirmative action case. And she was like, you can't just remove race and then remove racism. It doesn't work like that. You can't forget about race. Oh, it's, it's a colorblind world and racism doesn't exist. It doesn't work like that and also with sexism you can't just say oh I love women women are amazing and then not do anything to systemically change that mm -hmm. you, you just can't say this doesn't exist and move on we have to acknowledge that you know one of the most beautiful things about the intersectional lens and if you haven't looked up Kimberly Crenshaw I highly highly recommend it she's an extraordinary um, thinker but one of the things that's so beautiful about intersectionality is it utterly rejects the whole colorblind, genderblind. There is no such thing. And it, it creates harm when people say that it does, right? Because, of course, that's not true. So the more you insist on something, it's kind of the worst possible gaslighting that there is. And I think what's so beautiful about intersectionality is it celebrates the differences. It's celebrates the different aspects that make people who they are and also calls to account that there has it's interesting hannah in our program we actually do a piece on body image right because it's it's huge for all women and for but part of that is the european beauty standards that have been held up in our country as a part and dismantling those and how do we do that as a community and how do we use some of the uh, regulating nervous system regulating skills i was talking about when you're confronted with something like that on a day-to-day -day basis which is so aggressive right how do you regulate so that we can make change because ultimately we we regulate one to feel better and so people don't have control over that 
But the other reason we regulate is to be able to come to a place to make change because we get exhausted and burned out, right? Over and over. And our intersectional women get exhausted and burned out more because they're being hit with more. So if we are going to make the change we need to see, and if we are going to have the leaders that we need to have, we need to equip them with the skills to regulate and as Hannah said, breathe so they can make the change that needs to be made. But are there any sort of final questions that any of the podcast hosts have or Sarah? I would say thank you so much. And especially the breathing practice. I love that. Like I, I honestly felt so calm after that. And I really love your expertise and your perspective. And I love everything that you're doing. And you're so inspiring. Emily, thank you. And please give my love to your social worker. Please give her a hug. And she'll be like, I don't know who this is. And you'll be like, trust me, she's hugging you. I also like just piggybacking off of Emily and what she just said, like, this has been like each podcast episode that I seem to be a part of, it just is transforming my perspective on life and just civic engagement more and more. And it's so beneficial. And so just thank you so much for this transformative experience. And I definitely, I have so many more questions that we don't have time for. So I will be definitely, I will definitely be getting in contact with you, but I definitely hope that all those listening will also reach out. Um, I believe you're like, there's way to con there's ways to contact you going through the democracy website. If you want to even share like some of that information, just because after this conversation, I I can't I don't see how anybody could not want to learn more about this amazing organization and even just how your advice on what we can continue to do as women and even those who are not female identifying what they can do to also help the cause. So just thank you so much for taking your time out of your evening today to really spend some time with us, with our listeners, and to really help us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Emily. And what a nice thing to suggest, because I would love to tell people how to find us. So on our website is democracy.org, all one word, like democracy, but democracy, because someday the two will be interchangeable. So democracy.org. On Instagram, we're at democracy.org. Um, and I feel like that's the best ways to find us. And also, please apply. Our spring applications are open. And you've got some democracy heroes amongst you because Hannah will be a democracy hero. So your very own Hannah will be one of your sisters. And I can't, I don't think say anything better to get people recruited than Hannah will be one of your democracy sisters that you will be seeing at democracy alumni events. And ideally, Emily. Woo, we're so excited. We're so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. I'm editor Amy signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org slash podcast for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to see become more civic-minded.